Open your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 15. Gospel of Mark chapter 15. The company that hosts our internet service is called Midphase. And uh, I got an email from this week, from them this week, and said, have a, have a fantastic Easter vacation. <laughs> and uh, one of the other places that sends me emails is a, a little place down in Bellingham called Harbor Freight. Can I, can I get a witness? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, this is their idea of celebrating Easter. 25% off. Sunday, April 5th only, a one-day special coupon. From what I saw on TV in the last couple of weeks, I need to color some eggs, buy some clothes, eat some candy, and cook a spiral-sliced ham. Along with the vacation and the shopping trip, my Easter will be perfect and complete. How do we really get beyond the habits of our traditions? Nothing wrong with an Easter breakfast. You know, there'll be some, uh, some of those little plastic eggs out in our backyard today for the grandkids. There's nothing wrong with all that. But how do we get beyond that to what Easter is really about? Well, I, I want to share with you today this thought. The only way to appreciate the significance of Easter is to follow Christ through the events leading up to the resurrection and see them from his perspective. God doesn't just give us facts, if you will, in the Bible. He gives us uh, feelings. He gives us understanding. He helps us to, to see how significant things are. And there's nothing more significant than the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And so from, from, uh, from a key verse, I want to start, actually, and, and take a thought from this verse, and then we're going to go to Mark 15. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, but there was shame to despise, there was shame to be endured. And I want to start, first of all, by understanding what was the shame that Jesus suffered for us. And that shame begins with the shame of rejection by the very people he came to save. We see that in Mark 15, starting in verse 1. Jesus was arrested the night before, or taken into custody, and he was tried, uh, interrogated in front of the Jewish authorities. Now he's taken to the Roman governor. Pilate is his name. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. These were the people who were the leaders of the religious system of Israel. Now what's particularly uh, challenging, maybe ironic for Christ is this. Who set up the religious system of Israel? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit caused truth to be delivered to the people in the Old Testament um, Moses and, and others coming on from there, and they set up this whole system of worship 
A significant person in that system was the chief priest. Why was there such a person as a chief priest with a position of authority? Because God willed it. And here is God in the flesh being rejected by the people he set up to lead Israel. That's not the only rejection of his people, though. Follow on, starting in verse 6. Now, at the feast, that's at the Jewish holiday celebration feast, Pilate was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them. He would commute the sentence of one prisoner. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Uh, We would call them today uh, terrorists or uh, insurrectionists. They were trying to overthrow the government of Rome. Then the multitude, verse 8, the multitude crying aloud, began to ask Pilate to do just as he had done always for them. But Pilate answered them and said, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, Jesus? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them, what do you want me to do then with him who is called the king of the Jews? So the multitude cried out, crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out, all the more, crucify him. These are the people Jesus came to give himself to, to save, to help. And they're saying, put him to death. Would you turn back with me just a few pages to Mark 11? Mark 11, 7. Just a week before the events of Mark 15, when they're saying crucify him, we read this in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 7. Then they brought a colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. It's a week before the crucifixion and resurrection. They cut down branches, lay them on the road. Then those who were walking ahead of him and those who were walking behind him in a parade-like manner said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. Now think of it. You come in one week, you're riding on a a colt of a donkey. People are spreading their clothes in the way so so you can have a nice clear path to walk into town. And they're going, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were using Old Testament scripture to acknowledge that Jesus was a king in the line of David, entitled to the throne in Jerusalem, and they were acknowledging him as the Messiah. As much as they knew, that's what they were doing. And a week later, they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. In Matthew 23, we read Jesus' response after riding into town on the colt, dealing with people, he sits and looks at Jerusalem, and this is what he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. 
Jesus came to his own. John says that his own received him not. As children grow up and learn to do things, they start to refuse our help. I can do it myself. You ever heard that? Yeah, a couple times. Yeah. Can I I tie your shoes? I can do it myself. I can do it myself, whether they can or they can't sometimes. Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity, laid aside the glories of heaven, the worship of the angels. He laid that aside and he confined himself to a human body for 33 years and confined himself to that limited existence with a few displays of the glory along the way to reach out to his own people. But in the end, they said, I can do it myself. They rejected him. I don't need you. You ever been rejected by somebody who you thought was your friend? Does that sting a little bit? The shame of rejection by the people he came to save. The second shame is the shame of undeserved punishment. Look with me at chapter 15 of Mark. Again, let's go back there and look at verse 15. Pilate, the Roman governor, hearing these people say, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate wanted to to gratify. He wanted to make them happy, the crowd. And so he released this prisoner, Barabbas, and he delivered Jesus to be crucified after he scourged him. We looked at this just a little bit a couple of weeks ago. But think about this in terms of the punishment of Christ. There's never been a perfect person on the earth. There's never been a person who was completely free of wrongdoing except one. And that's Jesus. In fact, Jesus said this. Jesus said this to those who hated him at one point. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, you're standing here criticizing me. Tell me my wrong. Tell me what I have done wrong by God's standard. Now, that's a bold claim. Um, All of us would know that we can't make that claim because we have all done things that are wrong. But Jesus could make that claim. You know, in recent years, in fact, just yesterday in the newspaper, I saw the story of a man who'd been on death row for 30 years or 33 years, and he was released because of a fresh look at the evidence and a very particular part of that evidence that showed it was not him who did the crime. When we see that, we think, wow, that's, to be in prison all that time, that must must feel terrible. You know what, what must feel terrible is to be sitting in that courtroom and people are giving testimony, testimony, and they're saying, you did a crime, you did a crime, you did a crime, you did a crime, and you're going, no, 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 I'm innocent, I'm innocent, and... In the end, they say, you're guilty. Well, how does that make you feel? Wow. Ooh, not good. I mean, the the punishment is bad enough, but just the fact that they're saying you're guilty when you're not. That's what they said to Jesus. They said, in fact, it's it's even worse than that because Pilate said, I'm going to whip you. I'm going to have you whipped by the soldiers. We we call it whipping. The, The proper word is a scourge. 
and it probably had some sharp items embedded into it so that it would really tear people up when it was applied. I find no fault in this man. That's what Pilate said, but I'm going to have him scourged anyway. Maybe that'll make the crowd happy. How would you feel if you were standing there going, hey, hey, you said I'm not guilty. I don't need that. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to scourge you, and then we're going to send you out to be crucified. Undeserved punishment. I, I'm pretty sure I deserve most of the punishment I got when I was a kid. I got some spankings, you know. And I'm pretty sure most of the time I deserved them. There's probably a couple things I didn't get spanked for that I should have got spanked for. But Jesus was absolutely sinless and yet punished I can imagine people standing by saying, well, he says he's sinless. But they don't scourge people that aren't guilty, you know. Can you imagine that kind of scorn heaped on? So the soldiers scourged him, and when they were done, they had their own fun in their way of thinking. They mocked him. Look at verse 16. Then the soldiers led him away to the hall called the praetorium, that's, that word just means the, the place where the Roman governor would, hold, would, would stay and where the troops would stay and that sort of thing. And they called together the whole garrison. You get that? Hey, we're going to have some fun with this guy. He says he's the king of the Jews. Hey, come on down. There's no TV and there's no internet, so the entertainment was whipping an innocent man and then making fun of him. And they clothed him with purple. Purple would have been a color. It was an expensive to dye cloth that color, and it was the color of royalty. So they took a purple cloth and put it on him. They twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they began to salute him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they struck him on the head with a reed, took a stick and whacked him on the head where the where the crown of thorns was, and they spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him, like they would to a real king. They would, they would bow and so on. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off, put on his own clothes, and led him out to crucify him. The shame of mocking by the soldiers. They are acting in a way that says, I'm superior, you are inferior, I'm in control, you're just a wicked prisoner, I can do with you what I want. Now, what do you suppose was going through the mind of Christ at that moment? Do you suppose he might have reflected on this incident from the night before? Jesus, therefore, knowing that all things would come upon him, when, when they came to arrest him, they came with soldiers and with the Jewish leaders Knowing that all things would come upon him, he went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Love that part of the story, don't you? He said, I am he, and they, it, it knocked them over. Or as we say, it bowled them over. could have been some of those very same soldiers that now are, are scourging him and are mocking him. You know, Colossians 1.17 says that Christ holds the world together. 
When you ask why the God particle is still the God particle in the atomic energy uh, uh, search, it's because there is a God who holds it all together. You suppose Jesus thought for just a moment, boy, I'd like to let go of these guys. They think they're something and they think I'm nothing. Oh, God, give me strength to endure this shame. And then there's the shame of of weakness. The shame of weakness. Look at verse 21. Verse 20, at the end of it, it says, They led him out to be crucified, and then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by. You understand, Simon was just a guy walking through town. He wasn't even trying to be part of this crowd. He, w- he was coming out of the country and happened to be passing by, and they, they looked around and said, there's a guy, and they brought him to the, they, they said, you're going to carry this cross. Jesus couldn't carry his own cross. Now, we feel sympathy for him, but you have to remember it was an evidence of his weakness at that moment. When he was arrested in Gethsemane, he said this to Peter, who was trying to protect him with the sword. Do you, do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Can you imagine having that kind of power in the face of people who are treating you poorly and, and, and not exerting that self-serving power? He had, to, he had to live in weakness all the way through these terrible events. He had to be seen as weak. And that weakness, of course, gets worse as we go on because there is the shame of crucifixion. Verse 22, and they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated the place of a skull. If you, what it means is if you would look at this geographically from the side, it would resemble the, the face of a skull. And they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. That was sort of a sedative, if you will. And then they crucified him. Putting a criminal up in the air for all to see was a way to humiliate that person. Obviously, there were many ways that they could have killed him, but this particular insult was spoken of thousands of years earlier in the law of God in the Old Testament. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he's put to death and you you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Nothing could have been more farther from the truth, if you will, that God was not cursing Christ. That's not why he was hanged on a tree. The Jewish means of capital punishment was stoning. And if they hung somebody up on a tree, it was to give a special insult. You know, it's sort of like killing someone and then killing them again, if you will. And so here's Christ hanging on a tree, um, lifted up for all to see, and it's a disgrace. 
It's a disgrace. It's a shame. But the shame's not over because then there's the shame of nakedness. Look at verse 24. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Casting of lots would be comparable to playing dice. You know, if it's a if I get a six, I get this. If I get an eight, I get that. Whatever it was, it was some way that they would throw things and, and reckon the answer to their questions. And they cast lots for his clothing. The other scripture tells us that he had a, an outer clothing that was woven in one piece from the, time, from the top to the bottom, so it was special. So instead of just tearing it up into four pieces, they, they gambled for it, if you will. But here's the thing you need to understand. They took his clothing. In that day, clothing was a commodity like money, like silver or gold. Uh, we don't think of clothing that way. Uh, certainly there is some expensive clothing in the world, but they would, they would use clothing like a commodity to buy and sell and trade with. And so they were, they were essentially taking the money out of his wallet, if you want to call it that. But after they took it, he was naked. You know, before sin came into the world, this is what we read about Adam and Eve. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now, I understand, you know, there's a host of, there's a host of things that go into this. I understand there's nothing wrong with a husband and a wife having a wonderful physical union and so on. I understand all of that. But there's a key element of human nature that changed with, with sin, and it's this. After sin, the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed, sewed fig leaves and made themselves coverings. Something about sin and the opening of mankind's eyes has caused us to not want to show our private parts. It's considered a shame. We use it in torture. I'm not saying I approve of that, but it's used in torture of prisoners. Take their clothes away. Let them be in there naked. And it shames them. And here's Jesus, beat nearly to death, hanging on a cross, not elevated way up high. Probably His feet were probably only a foot off the ground, if that. And he's hanging there naked, and people are walking right up to him and insulting him, and there he hangs for all the world to see. That's shame. That was a shame. And then the shame goes on. It's, it's the shame of being associated with criminals. Look at verse 27. With him they also crucified two thieves, one on the right hand, the other on the left. Now, you know, the Romans crucified a lot of people. There were times, there's uh, stories told of them crucifying people all the way down the road, if you will. There could have been more than two people crucified in that place. Do you think it's an accident they put two thieves, one on the right hand, the other on the left? They could have put the two thieves over here and Jesus over here. This prophecy in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, about what was going to happen to Christ. Therefore I will divide Jesus, a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He was counted as one of the criminals. And, and earlier in that verse, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet the way we saw him was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. 
One of these words indicates off in the head. The other one just in, others just indicate being cursed of God. The common understanding of life in the day of Jesus and before was this, among the religious people. If you live a good life, you get good things in your life, and if you get bad things in your life, you must be a sinner. So what would they have said of Christ on the cross with all of that terrible punishment and, and nakedness and all of that, they must have said, you are terrible. You had to be terrible because God has let this happen to you. It's not over yet, though. There is the shame of the mocking crowds. Look with me at verse 33. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him and, and to drink, saying, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last while Jesus was on the cross, he was, he was insulted. Back in verse 29, excuse me. Those who passed by blasphemed him. The word blaspheme means it's to speak evil. Wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also mocking, saying, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross. And obviously we know that that would have been possible. But here's the thing that I'd like you to think about, the shame of this mocking again from his people. Listen to, what, listen to the way Jesus treated the people when he was on earth. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem... Now, it doesn't mean every single person, but a crowd from the breadth of, the, of Judea would be the county, Jerusalem would be the city. A crowd from there came from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. That means this is people from far and wide came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. There had to be people who were healed in the crowd saying, crucify him. Can you imagine that? This, 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 just this one episode is so big and so broad around Jerusalem. There had to be people there because they came to Jerusalem for the Passover feast and they were there for these events and they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. They're walking by going, oh, let's see if Elijah will come. And Oh, he saved others, he can't save himself. Wow, that's, that's pretty incredible to, to go that far for people and have them turn around on you. And then the part that we already read, the shame of death. Jesus was the all-powerful creator of the universe 
who had, to our way of understanding, unimaginable power at his disposal. John talks about him this way at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, that's a reference to Christ, as you'll see in a minute, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life. He possessed what we call life. Whatever the difference is between a living person and a corpse, he possessed that and he infused mankind with that. In him was life and that life was the light of men. And that one who possessed life went through death. He allowed himself to die. That's why God says this about him in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the very form or outward expression of God did not consider it something to hang on to like a treasure, to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant, a bond servant, a slave, and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Do you get that? Even God is saying, it wasn't just that he died, but he went through the death of the cross. Unbelievable. So as we go back to our starting point and say, he despised the shame, the shame of rejection by the people he came for, shame of undeserved punishment, the shame of mocking by the soldiers, the shame of weakness, of crucifixion, of nakedness, of association with criminals, the shame of mocking crowds and the shame of death itself. We have to say, what in the world kind of joy propels a person to endure that kind of shame? Well, very simply, first of all, it's the joy of vindication. Vindication. You know, when you and your loved one are having a discussion and you're saying it's like this and they say no, it's like that and you know it's like this, yes, it's like that and you say fine, fine, fine and a week later, turns out it is like this. Oh, that's sweet. But you'd never say I told you so. Jesus told his disciples, and he told the religious leaders, look, here's what's going to happen. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said, we want to see a sign or a miracle that proves your message. Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah the prophet. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus told those religious leaders, and you know what, they remembered this. Because after he was crucified, they went back to Pilate, the Roman governor, and said, that guy said he's only gonna be there three days and then he's coming back. And so give us a detachment of, of troops so that they can guard the tomb and, and take your seal your signet seal of authority and put that on the stone so that anybody who breaks it will be guilty and will have a punishment of death. We want to make sure that, he, that his, his followers don't come and steal him away. So they heard this and they understood this clearly. Jesus went through shame after shame after shame after shame. 
But as the song says, and as the sermon says, Sunday's coming. And there came the time when that work was done, and God rolled the stone back, and Jesus walked out a new man. That's vindication. The resurrection is the ultimate proof of Jesus' identity. In Romans 1, we read this, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. I don't think it's an accident that God made it a big deal when he came out of the grave, when Christ came out of the grave. The the earthquake, the soldiers falling down paralyzed with fear, sent some angels to sit there and say, hey, he's not here, he's already in town. There is vindication. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came to pay for our sins. We could not pay for our own sins because we're sinful to begin with. We can't offer God anything. We have nothing to offer him. And yet God wants to take our sin away and give us a new life. And so he sent his Son and he piled our sin onto him And Jesus preached this message, and he said, you need to believe in me. And when he rose from the dead, it proved that he was who he said he was. I've been to Israel. There's two places that they call the grave of Jesus. And you know what they have in common? Empty. If he'd stayed in the grave, those those haters in the religious community of, of Israel would have, they'd still be standing there with a guard. They'd have made it all the way through two world wars and a bunch of other things. They said, Jesus is right here. Don't you forget it. But no. No. He came out. That's vindication. That was part of his joy, but the, the greater part of his joy was the joy of salvation for us. Jesus didn't die and come back to life for his own sake, but he died and came back to life to obtain eternal salvation for us. Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits or the the first product out of the grave of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, that's Adam, Adam sinned, and God condemned him to death, and all who are born from Adam and Eve are under that condemnation. Since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. The joy of salvation. When a Christian dies, a person who has put their faith in Christ, their person or their spirit immediately joins God in heaven. Their body is put into the ground in some form. Could be cremated, could be buried, could be buried at sea, doesn't matter. Because in God's time, there will be a resurrection. In Christ, all shall be made alive. And this wonderful truth is summarized for us here in 1 Thessalonians. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord." Salvation ultimately means spending eternity with Christ in heaven. Can I get just a little amen? Amen. Are you looking forward to being with Christ in heaven? How many of you are looking forward to having a new body without any aches and pains? Yeah. Yeah. 
Christ went through all that shame to bring you salvation, to bring me salvation. How does that salvation become a reality in our life? We know he did it, we know it's accomplished, but how does it become a reality for us? 1 Corinthians 15, earlier in that chapter, says this, I declare to you the gospel, the good news is what that word means, which I preach to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The question to ask yourself is this, have I believed that Jesus Christ went to that cross for me, that he died for my sins, and that through my faith in him, God takes those sins away. Is my faith in him? Am I, am I holding fast? Am I believing? Am I standing on that truth? I'm standing on this platform. I have no doubt that it'll hold me up. The question we have to ask spiritually is, am I standing on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for my eternal salvation? It's the only platform that won't cave in. And I know it won't cave in because I saw all the wood that's underneath of it. The salvation of Christ is absolutely rock solid. Absolutely rock solid. Well, there's one more joy that Christ came to provide for us. And that's the joy of sanctification. And I know that's a 50 cent word, but I've been studying it in my most recent class that I'm taking. So I'm going to use it. And it means to be righteous, to act righteous. There's an element of sanctification that happens at the moment you get saved. When you accept Christ as your Savior, God takes you out of the kingdom of this world and puts you into his kingdom. He, he puts to death your sinful nature. He gives you the nature of Christ so that you might act in righteousness. That is the beginning of sanctification. But then it's an ongoing process of walking with God and of growing in him day by day. And what is the result of that? How does that work? We know that the sanctification starts this way. We were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even we should walk in the newness of life. You know what's really cool about the resurrection of Christ? When you believe in Christ, you're united with him, and God says you went through death, burial, and resurrection. Sin nature put to death, united with Christ, and you've come back now with a new life. Oh, man, what a great thing. For if we have been united in the likeness of his death, certainly we will be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that our old man was crucified, that the body of sin might be done away, that we don't have to be the slaves of sin any longer. There are some sins that we like to do and some sins that we'd like to escape. The truth is we need to let them all go. But God says he's made it possible that we can be victorious, we can be new people in Christ. And as we believe in Christ and walk with him, listen to this blessing. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. The blessing of sanctification is an increasing 
connection with God. We don't get saved more. Don't get me wrong. Once you put your faith in Christ, you're as saved and on your way to heaven as you'll ever be, but you're not as righteous as you'll ever be. And as we walk with Christ day by day by day, as we keep his word, we gain more and more of the character of Christ. When we walk with him, freedom takes the place of guilt. Peace replaces fear. Hope replaces sadness. Confidence replaces uncertainty. Loneliness is replaced with connection. Life becomes meaningful and eternity becomes real. Christ endured shame we cannot imagine to bring us salvation beyond our expectation. How should I respond to that sacrificial love of Christ, the love that caused him to suffer and bring me salvation? How do I respond to that? Well, Hebrews 12.1 comes right before Hebrews 12.2. See, there's Hebrews 12.2, the the verse we looked at a minute ago, it says, but verse one says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily snares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Our response to the sacrificial love of Christ, first of all, needs to start right here. Are you a believer in Christ? Is it your faith? It's, this isn't saying our faith like, oh, we're all Christians, this is a big house, and you know, I've come to a Christian church on Easter, so it's our faith. No, he's saying, my faith is what he's saying. Is your faith in Christ as your Savior? I need to make Christ mine through faith. Have you received Christ Many people know about him. Many people like his ideals. Many people believe in some kind of God. But have you transferred all the faith you have in anything or anyone else to Christ? Many people are content to add Christ to their list of beliefs. To add him to their pantheon of gods. But God says there's only two places to rest your faith. One is in you and all the rest of humankind and their ideas, and the other is in Jesus Christ as our Savior. It's a very simple concept, but oftentimes there's a battle that goes on in our soul when we're trying to make that decision. Is this faith your faith? You might have grown up in a Christian home, your parents have faith, you come to this church, you know Pastor Dave has faith, at least you expect that he does, and as far as I'm pretty darn sure that he does. But is this faith your faith? Is this faith, faith your faith? Do you remember this verse we looked at earlier? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I wanted to gather you together, but you were not willing. I wonder... If you're sitting in this chair and Christ is going, come on, come on, come on, come on. And you're going, no, no, I'm going to do it myself. 
His people rejected him. Ah, boy, I urge you not to reject him. Uh, those of you that come here on a regular basis know the, the, the saga of heartbreak I've had with uh, my number seven grandchild, Titus, <laughs> who doesn't want anything to do with me, even though I'm a wonderful, lovely, cuddly fellow. But now there's somebody else in his life, little baby Isaiah, and Grandpa doesn't look so bad anymore. <laughs> and I've been feeding him candy every time I get a chance. <laughs> and this last Wednesday night, he went like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lasted for about 30 seconds. Back to Grandma. The reason that happened this last Wednesday night is because I'm not giving up on him. And God hasn't given up on you. doesn't matter how, how much you don't like God. doesn't matter how far you think you are away from him or how undeserving you think you are. God hasn't given up on you. That's why you're sitting here today hearing God's word spoken to you. We should respond to the sacrificial love of Christ. If, 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 there was, if there was any movement in your heart whatsoever as you heard about the shame that Christ endured, then that's the Holy Spirit saying you need to respond to this by making Christ your Savior. Once you make Christ your Savior, there is another thing that you need to do. We should imitate Christ by endurance in righteousness. Christ had many challenges and temptations, which he avoided because he had his eye on completing the work of salvation. Saying no to sin is hard work. That is the main point of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. He's saying, look what Jesus went through. Now you folks, you endure in walking in righteousness as well. Once we have believed in Christ, we need to keep this image of him in mind to say he went through way more than I'll ever even dream of going through, and he did it for me, can I say no to the temptations that are coming my way today for him? Peter summed it up this way. Christ also suffered for us. He was shamed for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. God is not saying that we need to earn our own salvation by dying on our own cross. He's talking about after we have believed in him, after we have been made a child of God, then we are to follow his example and say, I am gonna do what it takes to walk with him. What more could Christ do for us to show his love than he has? Nothing. There's nothing more that he could have done the choir is going to come and we're going to sing a song talking about God loving us first. I hope you'll think about that element of God's love where he reached out to us and did not give up on us. I hope I was saying you'll think about that sacrificial love and think about your response to it today.